welcome to The New Beyond, a podcast that invites listeners to learn how to not only think outside the box, but learn how to live outside it, out in the new beyond, where comfort zones are history, and we're tasked with learning how to navigate this brave new world. I'm Dr. Judith Rich, an octogenarian, coach, and author of the best-selling book, Beyond the Box. I've spent the last 46 years in the field of transformation, coaching people all over the world, how to identify and break through old patterns and limiting beliefs that have kept them stuck and challenged to progress their lives in the direction of what matters most. In this podcast, I'll be your guide. And from time to time, we'll hear from some interesting people in the field of transformation and others who by example are out there courageously tearing down old walls, reinventing themselves and building their lives in the new beyond. Join me as we begin an adventure in going beyond where you think you can go. You can find us on your favorite podcast provider and don't forget to subscribe so you won't miss a single episode. I'm ready. Are you? All right, let's begin. Hi, everybody, and welcome back. I'm Judith Rich, and we're meeting at the New Beyond. I'm I'm so excited about this session with you all today because this I not only have a juicy guest. But she's here to talk about a juicy topic. And when I, what I mean by juicy is something that is gripping. It touches the heart. My heart is so touched and moved by who this woman is and what she's up to in the world. Let me share with you about Eva Medlick, my guest on the podcast today. So Eva is a certified high performance coach. She's an international speaker. She's a best-selling author and a cultural inclusivity trainer. She works with entrepreneurs and executives in building habits for success, cultural intelligence, and inclusive consciousness. Here's the good part. I mean, it's all good, but listen to this. Without sacrificing personal fulfillment. I mean, isn't that, isn't that what we all want to be able to do is to really, you know, develop our full potential and still be a person and have a life? Um, in addition to that, Eva specializes in helping busy professionals have more time, money, and success. Here's that sacrifice word again, without sacrificing health, well-being, and relationships. So Eva is the author of the best-selling book, The Intimacy of Race, How to Move from Subconscious Racism to Active Allyship for People of Privilege. And we're going to dive into this book as we get into our interview. She also started a Facebook group, also known by the name of her book, The Intimacy of Race, which goes live every Friday. And um, Eva's going to talk to us about how that group came about and why she created it. And if that's not enough, as if she weren't already out there in the world, you know, making all kinds of difference, 
She's also the creator of a newly minted radio show, What's Important Now, which airs live every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Pacific Standard Time on the Voice America Radio Network. Okay, so that is Eva's official bio. But there's a whole other dimension to who this woman is that's not contained in that bio and can't be contained on the written page because it doesn't mention that Eva is the kind of human being who when she enters a room, her presence is immediately felt. You know that kind of person? Not that she makes a big announcement or makes a big splash, but that she is a light, but that her energy radiates grace and confidence at the same time being present and connected. So Eva Medelik, welcome. I'm so excited to have you here. Wow, that was some introduction. I'm wondering who is this person? <laughs> you know, so when you said that, I thought immediately how my husband just an hour ago said, I need to be wrapped in bubble wrap because I keep bumping into things and <laughs> talking. And you said I walk in with grace and presence. <laughs> Sorry, I had to laugh at that. <laughs> well, you know, there's always the personal, there's always yes. the personal side and the and the and the, the oh my god, side. that was so cute. I was like, just like an hour ago, I really like somebody put a wall that wasn't in my house before. Where did that wall come from that I bumped my head on? <laughs> But no, that was such a beautiful introduction. And, and, you know, it means so much coming from you because I hold you in such high um, esteem with, you know, who you are in the world and how you have dedicated your life and your energy to helping us with our own personal transformation. So it does mean a lot to you. Uh, Yes. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. The blessing goes both ways Mm -hmm. for sure. So I'd like to dive right in with you. Um, You know, you, you so beautifully and graciously hand delivered a copy of your book to me, actually two copies of your book, which I, which, you know, was just so touching. And so I've been reading your book, which I'm, I find so informative, so educational, so important to, you know, myself as a white woman of privilege who considers herself an ally and to anyone and everyone else who comes in that, you know, or who would like to be part of that movement. And the very first thing, like the very first page of your book already had me in tears, Mm -hmm. already had me in tears. And to me, it speaks so loudly to who you are. And I wonder if you would share the dedication of your book, which you dedicate to your father. Yeah. <clears throat> yes, I do. And so I write here in, in the very first page as a thank you to my father, Benjamin Leake, who survived and thrived to tell the stories of Jim Crow South, the civil rights movement in the 1960s, countless acts of racism and discrimination as a black man and an African-American police officer and all of my ancestors before him so that I can be here and be free and perhaps somehow make a difference. And the reason why, you know, my my dad is still alive, God bless him at 89 years old. Oh, wonderful. um, You know, and he often gets asked on on Martin Luther King Jr.'s birthday to to speak and to share some of his experiences. 
he guarded Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. a week before his assassination. And I was eight years old at the time because it was 1968, not realizing the magnitude of, of that history. And I don't think my father fully realized too, because he gets honored like every year somewhere and he just forgets to tell me like, oh yeah, they honored me here. And oh yeah, they are. I was like, daddy, it's a big deal. <laughs> like, you, you got, it'd be nice if I knew and we could show up and, and be proud of you. But my point in, in sharing that is for years, I've, I heard these stories of, you know, how, you know, the white police officers wouldn't ride in the squad car with him because he was black. So he had to um, learn how to be a motorcycle cop, ride the motorcycle. And every morning he would go to work and they would taunt him and say, I hope you crash and die. I hope you crash and die. Oh God. And I remember the day the police officers came to our home with his helmet and gun. He had crashed and he didn't die. And I just remember being a, a little girl, probably six or seven years old and the panic on my mother and just all that daddy had to endure just to go to work and, and give us that middle-class black lifestyle that I grew up in as an only child going to private schools and, and being the only and the, the level of sacrifice he made. And often people ask me why I do this work and aren't I tired? And I'm like, yeah, I'm tired. <laughs> I'm always tired. Um, and yes, I do feel like giving up a lot of the times because of sometimes it just seems fruitless, you know, that nobody's listening. It's not getting through. And, mm -hmm. and then I thought, I yeah. don't have the right to quit. Nobody quit. None of my ancestors quit on me oh. for me to get to where I am now. And if I'm tired, I rest. That's what resting is for, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> It's not for, I'm tired. I just want to lay down and die. No, it's you not about and take a nap. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's not about quitting. Yeah. Yeah. And just expect to get tired. And, you know, as a high performance coach, I know how to generate, not have the energy, but generate the energy that's necessary for me to be able to perform my best and show up on my A game and in this work and, and as a, as a wife, as a, as a mom, as a dog mom, as whatever I need, you know, just to constantly generate energy so that the times that I do get tired and, and do feel spent are few and far between. It's because I didn't generate enough energy. You know, that, you know, that, that expression, that term generate the energy, I'm thinking about your ancestors mm. and I'm thinking about over the deck, over the centuries, really, because you mentioned in your book that is it your great grandmother that was a slave? My great great. And I knew her, Judith. I knew her. I was 14 when she died, or 15. Oh my God. And I remember saying to my grandmother, Grandma, you have a grandma? <laughs> yeah, yeah, Wait, yeah. How can grandmas have grandmas? I mean, <laughs> yeah, it, was just, right. it just was unimaginable to me that my grandma had a grandma and sweetest woman, Matilda Brown. And I remember she was just frail and, you know, in her 90s, probably about 98 when she, she died. And um, she gave me all of her old Avon talcum powder tins, uh -huh. me not knowing how valuable they were. 
every morning I'm just sprinkling on themselves. I got my great, great grandma's you know, powder throwing out the tin. And I'm like, to this day, when we talk about regrets, that's one of my big regrets, but what a blessing to have known her and oh. to have gone to her birthday parties, to have eaten her chicken and dumplings. She was still cooking for us at 90 something years oh old. Oh my goodness. And it's just like, wow, if she can survive growing up in slavery. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm tired because somebody misunderstood what I said. Like really Eva, get a grip. Yes. <laughs> yes. And really how amazing and what a gift that you have that you can reach back through that lineage that you mm-hmm. actually have access to personal memories of her mm-hmm. that you can reach back to her and receive the blessing of what and who she was and what she represented and, and what she gave you, you know, what she demonstrated just by virtue of the fact that she was a slave and she made it through all of that. Yeah. Yeah. She was born into slavery and, you know, you know, I I'm still in awe and in high admiration of the number of people that I've known in my lifetime that have grown up either born into slavery or grown up in Jim Crow South, there's not a revengeful bone in their bodies. The sweetest, most lovely people I have ever known in my life that I now see clearly what that represents where I didn't before, you know, as a child, old people are old people, you know, they can be annoying. Sometimes they smell funny, all that kind of stuff. Right. But every memory that I have of every person that I know has endured this level of um, injustice and disrespect and hate has never shown that bitterness in who they are in their families and and people they interacted with. And I'm just like, how do you think, how did they, how did they become that? Do you imagine? Well, you'll see it now with everybody, you, you know, with everything that's gone on with racial injustice in our history, there are very few people of color who are hell bent on getting revenge. We just want an equal chance. Yeah. You want, you want equality. We want equality. You want justice. We want to be treated fairly like everybody else. We don't want to be different. Nobody I mean, have you ever really stopped to think about how nobody is out for, nobody's fighting for restitution. And I think we should at some point because other uh, groups and communities have fought for it and gotten it. I mean, even in in the Holocaust, there's restitution, but we're not fighting for that. We're just fighting for our lives to matter. It's so simple. So simple and yet so complicated at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, as a white woman, I can't even begin to speak to what it must be like to be um, consciously involved with this community as a black person in, you know, we can only speak about America, although mm-hmm. I there are people who will be listening to this podcast, who don't live in this country. So there's a unique 
experience among a people of color in, in America. Right. Yes. And um, I, I'm wondering, you know, your observation on where it all is at this, where we are, you know, it's like, okay, so I'm, I'm jumping ahead a little bit. Let okay. me, let me pull myself back. So, uh, so you grew up with a father who was a police officer who, you know, so was there, as you were growing up as a child, was there any kind of conscious awareness at that time of civil rights movement or anything that was going on um, at that time? For this spoiled sheltered child, I didn't even know what colored people were. My parents, okay, picture this, the 1960s, the big television, me on the floor like that watching TV and my parents watching the Jackie Gleason show. (laughs) (laughs) And it's in black and white, of course. Yes. And they're trying to pick out the colored girls. My first thought was, I wonder what color they are. <laughs> like they could I have remember, been pink. That is such green. a vivid memory for me because it was a thought I had. I didn't ask my parents, but I'm sitting there wondering, what color could these colored girls, you know, what is it? The June Taylor dancers, I think he had. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm like, I'm wondering what color they are. they purple? Because they're looking, they're trying to look at the legs and figure out what color the girls are. But, you know, I heard my parents always reference and trying to pick out where they saw other um, uh, other black women or men in in TV. But I was pretty protected because of what my father saw and experienced. So I grew up a lot, uh, a little bit naive to what was really going on in the world. Mm. They did a really intentional job of trying to protect me from, um, you know, I experienced microaggressions because I did go to to schools that were predominantly white. And um, so I experienced all that entails. But as far as what my father was experiencing on a day-to-day basis, I literally didn't find out most of it till maybe 20 years ago when I'm in my sixties and it was stuff like, and I'm like, you didn't think this was a good idea to let me know. <laughs> Have you ever heard of Reuben Hurricane Carter? He I've heard. A, yes. I've heard yeah, of him. Yeah, I think it was Denzel Washington played him in a movie. He was from my hometown of Patterson, New Jersey. And I, I just shared with you the day that the officers came to um, my parents' house uh, with me and my mom, with my, my dad had been in an accident. Well, it was Reuben Hurricane Carter who found my father and got him help and got him to the hospital. Now, I didn't find this out till long after the movie was made, the whole thing about him being wrongly incarcerated, and then he was let out, and then a book was written in a movie. And I finally said to my dad, I was like, why did you never think this was a good idea to let me know (laughs) your connection to Reuben Hurricane Carter? So he literally kept me from a lot of these things. And it wasn't until my children came on the scene and got curious. And, you know, we would do these, these interviews on VHS tape with, with my, my grandparents who were my children's great grandparents. And I was like, you know, let's, let's capture some history. Well, they started asking questions and some things started coming out about, you know, some of my father's experiences that he really never openly shared. And it's something I find a lot in the black community that we just swallow it. 
we just take it. We don't say much. And it makes sense, you know, with the laws of Jim Crow South, if you said anything that a white person would take offense to, it would cost you your life yeah, and your family's life. And so I remember just hearing things like if I complained about something, just don't say anything, just let it go. Yes. It was really like, you know, you don't want to make a fuss. You don't want to make a big deal. Just let it go. You know, that's how they are. Just let it go. Just let it go. So we were never really encouraged. I was, I'm an only child. Um, you know, the, the coaching I got from my dad back then was not to say anything. And I found that after George Floyd's murder, that was no longer an option for me mm. personally. And I really felt some shame and guilt around um, not speaking up more, not advocating more for myself in situations or for things that I saw. And I think that happened to a lot of people with George Floyd's murder that our voices were unleashed. The yoke yeah. was off of our necks. Yeah. And it was time to speak up. Like that was literally the straw that broke the camel's back. Yes. Yes. And you, you write about that in your book, you share about the generational pain that you became aware of in the aftermath of George Floyd's murder. Uh, murder. And, uh, you know, you share, I thought it was so interesting. You shared about when you first heard about the murder at first, you weren't that surprised. It was like, oh, another black man killed by the cops, right? Mm -hmm. yeah, and you'd and become numb to it. You'd become numb to it. And then as it gained, as that news gained more traction, something in you got triggered, got awakened, right? Well, I finally allowed myself to watch the video. I did not need to see another video of a black man being murdered. I had seen way too many of those. Um, you know, I still have friends of mine who have not seen it, who refuse to see it. But I it's got hard. curious. I got curious and I'm like, I want to see what everybody's talking about. Like this is, you know, usually this dies down by now. Why is this still going? And why is this now in other countries? And, you know, so I had to kind of get curious. And when I finally googled it and allowed myself to watch it I literally broke inside and it was surprising to me because I'm not I'm not a crier um, other than puppy videos I'm not one to um, you know I really can be stoic because my father pretty much trained me hold everything in hold everything in mm -hmm. and you know and I'm learning to let go of that what I call relationship style that can prevent me from really being more vulnerable in situations but that broke me to my core. And um, one thing that I could not, re I could not figure out why was I crying all the time? Like I couldn't stop to like unconsolable crying and God bless my husband who, you know, is in a white body who didn't try to say things like, it's okay. It's going to be all right it'll be fine. It's not a big deal. Cause I probably would have punched him in the head, but what he did was he just put his arms around me and held me. And I'm like, Oh, thank God. Thank God. I don't have to school you at this point <laughs> because mm. I did not know what to expect. And, you know, he did not marry an activist, so to speak, but it was in a meditation um, over the grief that I was feeling that I had to just, you know, sit and be still and be quiet and, and, you know, ask my creator, 
what can I do? Like, I can't sit back and do nothing, but I have no idea what I'm going to do mm. or how I can make a difference and have an impact. I'm not a DE&I trainer. I, I, you know, I'm not skilled in this, you know, just because I'm black doesn't make, doesn't make me an expert on, on the <laughs> subject by, by way of skin color. And, you know, in that moment that I just asked for guidance, I thought about Facebook honestly. Mm-hmm. And what I was seeing happening on Facebook during that time, yeah, I was seeing people say things and um, make comments that I know were well-intentioned, yeah. but were ill-chosen. Yeah. Ooh. And they got slammed. <laughs> they got I remember. shame, blamed, guilted. And I'm like, okay, so I have a choice here. You know, we always have a choice whenever you add my S plus R equals R. We have a situation Plus our reaction or response equals the results. So my mm-hmm. choice is I can react and get pissed at people or I can respond and help them. You know, I can complain and do nothing or I can take it upon myself to be like, you know what? I see your heart. I see your intention. You know, let's create a safe space for all of us to, to learn and grow and have the resources that we need to navigate these really difficult waters. And that's where the forum that I first did, which was live, that the book is based on, and the Facebook group came out of. So talk about the forum. Tell us about the forum. The forum um, was my idea. I think I put it on June 13th and George Floyd was murdered. I believe it was May 25th or around there. Mm -hmm. And I was just like, I can help. My thing was, I can help white people. <laughs> That's exactly how I thought. I yeah, can like- I just insert something in here just <laughs> real quickly? Because I want to say that, you know, one of the things that, you know, I feel so endeared to you for exactly that attitude, you know, that you saw what was happening. You saw, uh, you experienced white people wanting to be wanting to do and say the right thing and not knowing what that was and stumbling all over themselves myself being one of them i remember being <laughs> you know really sh- sharply chastened by a comment that i made um online in response to the whole defund the police thing mm that I didn't think that was a very smart motto. I didn't think it was politically smart. I mean, not politically correct. I didn't mean that. I meant Mm -hmm. actually politically a very good strategy. It turns out actually that um, the Democrats lost a lot of seats in the House out of white reaction to the fear that Democrats were representing defund the police. So, but I got, you know, I got sharply um, criticized. (laughs) Yeah. I got criticized for that. Mm -hmm. And so I just went, Whoa, okay. This, this is not my, just shut your mouth, sit back, listen. And that's what I didn't want to happen. I didn't want people to shut down and not be an ally or an advocate for us. I wanted to arm you with the tools. Yes. 
Yeah, you know, because we're like, we need white people. We it's all hands on deck. We need to lock yes. arms together with this. Where, and you know, when I saw that happening, and my fear was, well, if we don't have white people on our side. Nothing's going to change for another four, eight hundred thousand yeah. years. It's going to be exactly <laughs> the same. And so, the forum was my response to that. It was called the Allyship Awareness Forum because there's this racism scale that I often um, bring up in my, my talks. Oh, you've got it in your book. Yes, that's right. I do. It's I actually my book on page again. 92. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I saw that and I yeah. studied it and I thought, oh, this is so powerful. So that's why I picked allyship awareness because it just starts with a heightened awareness on, um, on these, these issues and matters. And so I brought together, um, six leading women of color, myself being one of them. And that was an interesting um, feat to get women of color to want to be on this listen and learn event. It was a listen and learn, which meant white people come and listen and learn. We don't need you to share your opinion. We don't need you to agree or disagree because there was a lot of that. Well, you should, black people should do this and black people should do this. And, you know, that was not sitting well with all of us. (laughs) And I, I dare say 1000% 1000% of us. Yeah. And it was like, you need to hear us now. And a, a, a lot of, you know, I talked to you about this earlier, a lot of what's needed to create safe, inclusive spaces is the skill of listening, inclusive listening. So this was a listen and learn event. Yes, we did take some questions, but it was a three hour event. I had these amazing, amazing women that I mentioned in the book as well. Um, who supported me in this, but a lot of people that I did go to were like, it's not our job to teach white people. And they took the hands off. I was like, well, they're not going to figure it out on their own. So we, (laughs) if they want to, we've got to help them. And so, but you know, everybody has a different role in this. We all get to play a different part. And that was the part that I was called to do. And um, it was a powerful, powerful event. I always have, you know, if you go on my website, evamedelec.com, you can have access to the recording. A lot of people are mad at me that I didn't give it away for free, but that was a lot of emotional labor that went into that. And our emotional label gets to be compensated. Part of being an ally is to create that economic empowerment and support yes. people of color. Absolutely. So if you got a problem with paying for it, then you can buy the book. It's, it's a lot less expensive than really having access to uh, all of us speaking. Mm-hmm. And so, um, so that's where um, the allyship awareness forum came up, but I know that people still need it ongoing support. So I created the Facebook group, the intimacy of race, and I named the book after the Facebook group. <laughs> so that's how. That so so I, it, I, I think the title is interesting. The subtitle I totally get, how to move from subconscious racism to active allyship for people of privilege. Talk to us about the intimacy of race, what that means to you. These conversations often involve shared, sharing our lived experiences, mm-hmm. which are very okay. intimate and vulnerable. Mm-hmm. Our, uh, our receiving, our, our, well, let's, how can I put this? I'm gonna put it this way. You know, the microaggressions that we're subject to, the discrimination that we're subject to, 
the inhumanity that these microaggressions and 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 racist um, and racism that we're subject to is is hard to share. Could you say a bit more about microaggressions? Because while I'm aware of what it is, because I've read your book and I've been, <laughs> you know, I'm 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 I've been dialed into this for mm-hmm. a couple of years now since George, but before George Floyd's murder. I was not aware. I didn't know the term. I'd never heard the term microaggressions. And so I'm thinking there might be people out there who probably have heard the term now. I think a lot, most of us have been exposed. Let me go to the definition so that I don't screw this up. Is that in here? Um, Microaggression, a statement, action, or incident regarded as an instance of indirect, subtle, or unintentional discrimination against members of a marginalized group, such as a racial or ethnic minority. So I'll give you an example. Yeah. When I was about eight weeks pregnant with my first child, I had, I got really, really ill that, that disease that princess Kate had, you know, where you can't keep anything oh, in yeah. and everything's mm-hmm. coming out at both ends. And um, I was rushed to Long Island Jewish Hospital. And so I'm laying on the, you know, laying in the whatever room they put you in. And it's a teaching hospital. Long Island Jewish is a teaching hospital out in Long Island. And um, so I hear the doctors talking about me behind that very private thin curtain. Yeah. That nobody, that's totally sound. Yeah. All your conversations <laughs> are private behind the thin veil. And what I heard them say when they described my case before all the little students came in, what was I, a 26-year-old intelligent Black female? Mm. Mm. Okay. And so my first thought was, okay, what's the alternative to that? A 26-year-old stupid Black female? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Unintelligent? Would you say that about a white person? Yeah. There is an assumption that the intelligence of a black person is a surprise. Yeah. You know, we hear it in terms like when people hear me speak, you're so articulate. I have no idea why that would surprise anyone. Um, But they mean it, it sounds like a compliment, right? You speak so well. Judith, two weeks ago, I was onboarding a new client and she was talking to me about her first husband, the father of her child. And she says, you know, my first husband was African-American and she's in a white body. And she says, so my daughter's mixed, but he speaks very well. He speaks like a white person. Mm. Those are Mm. examples of microaggressions. Mm -hmm. And it really is to state that it implies that whiteness is the standard, Mm -hmm. the norm and Mm -hmm. the higher standard of norm of which we should all aspire to look like, sound like, and be like. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. And there's a presumption of that, isn't there? It's just like in a white person's mind, or I, I find it interesting that when you refer to a white person, you say in a white person's body. Because not all white bodies are white Americans. And this is what I mean by that. If you've ever been to Brazil, and I shouldn't even say white Americans, but 
when you're protected by the veil of whiteness, nobody knows what your ethnicity is. They see your skin color. Yeah. Yeah. And it's the same with brown skin as well. And we're judged by the color of our skin. Yeah. yeah but there's a lot of um, nationalities and, and, and ethnic um, <clears throat> areas where there's a rainbow of colors. There's um, in Australia, you know, you've got mm -hmm. the Aborigines. In Brazil, you've got white bodied Brazilians and brown skinned Brazilians and black skinned Brazilians. Um, they're all Brazilians, but there's a white body and a black body, and that gets treated differently. There are, um, in the Latinx communities, there's Afro-Latinas, um, there's white-bodied, where unless you knew their uh, history and ethnic background, you would not know that they were uh -huh. Latinas. So there's a certain amount okay. of privilege that comes in walking around in white skin, because you walk into a store in white skin, you are presumed innocent, worthy, trustworthy, yeah. all of that. You have that assumption based on your skin privilege. But that same ethnic group would walk in in a, in a black body. And there's a presumption of suspicion. Mm -hmm. We've got to watch them. So that's why I use white bodied. Got you. Got you. Would you say that, that the definition of privilege comes down to that? It's the distinction between walking around in a white person's skin mm -hmm. versus walking around in a, a person of color skin, some it's other skin hue privilege. of the rainbow. Yeah. It's yes? skin privilege. Yes. It's, it's skin white privilege. skin privilege. Yeah. Mm -hmm. White skin. That alone is the distinction that establishes one as a person of privilege. Yes. Yes. Because I think it was LBJ that had this famous quote, even the lowest white person on the socioeconomic status or ladder deems themselves superior to the highest ranking yes. person of color. Yes. It's the skin privilege. Yes. Yes. You know, the first time I heard that term and had it explained to me, it was like, oh, of course, <laughs> of course. I mean, it makes perfect sense. And yet as a person who's been in white skin all of my life, my skin, the color of my skin is invisible to me. And that's the privilege, isn't it? Yeah. That you it's, have to think about it when you walk into a place. It's not a factor. I don't go out in my, I don't go out in my day and, and think about whether or not my skin, the color of my skin is going to become a factor in, in any way on any level, because it yeah. never is. It just never comes up. And that's the level of stress and anxiety that people in black and brown bodies live with from birth. Oh man. I mean, if we could, if we, if people in white skin, if we, if we could white really, bodies, white bodies mm -hmm. if we could really get that, I mean, if that, yeah, and that's hard land. for a lot of people to get, I recently, recently last year was in Germany. Um, you know, my husband's German. So we, our intention is to spend summers in Germany so he can be near his family. And um, we live in Berlin, which is very diverse and multiculti. But this particular time we drove up north past Cologne into a little village where my sister-in-law lives. And 
he and I were walking around with my mother-in-law and I left them to have their um, mother-son bonding mm -hmm. experience. And I was just going to go into some little boutiques. And I went in and um, it was very clear that no one else in this town looks like me. It was very mm. clear. I mm. felt stared at. Um, I felt uncomfortable. I felt weary. I felt um, out of place. Mm -hmm. Like wondering, you know, is she, you know, how did she get here? Did she alien spaceship drop her here? And, you mm -hmm. know, I felt like Mork mm -hmm. from Ork. And, um, and so what I did, Judith, was I left. <laughs> And cause I didn't go in, usually I have my, my husband like, oh, it makes sense. She's with him. <laughs> you know, that's how she got here. But being on my own, it was different. Mm -hmm, and I yeah. was just exhausted at that point. So I posted in the intimacy of race Facebook group, about my experience being made to feel like a monkey in a zoo and, you know, mm -hmm. and just what that feels like a lot of times, like even, you know, I have my, my husband's older sister. I've been with my husband for 20 years. She still stares at me like she's never seen anything like it before in her life. <laughs> and it's just like, come on. And so anyway, I posted that experience in Facebook. And this is a response I got. You're staring because you're such a freaking gorgeous goddess. Well, you have confidence and they've never seen that level of beauty. And that was the level of bypassing of my lived experience. Ah, Bam. I see the intention of wanting to make me feel better. Yeah. But their response, as well-intentioned as it was, wanted me to shut down and not share another freaking thing with you again, because you just don't get it. You just don't understand. You're not even hearing what I'm saying. I'm not saying I'm ugly or I'm pretty or my looks had anything to do with it. I know when somebody's staring at me because I don't belong because you look different. Yes, yeah. I don't belong. I don't yeah. look like all of the other yeah. players in this movie here. Yeah. And yeah. So when I talk about creating safe and inclusive spaces, when someone is sharing that with you, listen to understand that shared experience. Don't listen to respond. Don't listen to react. Don't listen to agree. Don't listen to disagree. But you get to acknowledge that experience of this and listen for understanding. And that's the key to creating safe, inclusive spaces. Wow. You know, Eva, I, I just really want to thank you for, for taking ownership, for taking responsibility, for being the catalyst, mm -hmm. for, for supporting uh, this awareness among people of privilege, people in white bodies, because, you know, for, you know, I'm just, I can only speak for myself, but I'm not aware. I'm not saying that what I'm saying, what the, what I'm about to say is truth. I'm just saying, I'm not aware, not personally aware of a single other woman of color who has extended herself in the way that you have, who has really taken it on as, as a leader hmm. to, you know, to be a bridge, to be a catalyst for people in white bodies to become aware and, and, you know, expand their understanding, hmm. you know, hmm. to, so in, in my experience, you're the only one that I am aware of 
that has done this. And I've heard plenty of other black people, people of color say exactly what you, um, exactly what you referred to earlier. And it's like, okay, I got it. It's like, you know, the response was not our job, not our responsibility, do your work, figure this out. And when I heard that, it was like, okay, all right, that makes perfect sense. But kind of like the blind leading the blind where we're stumbling over each other. And someone like you, I just say, thank God that someone like you showed up in the middle of all of that as an interruption to say, let's do this together. Let's, you know, let's create a space. Yeah. 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 And, and, you know, we don't want to create spaces where people shut down. Like if that, if that had happened at, you know, the incident I shared with you and my Facebook group at my job or with my supervisors and they're like, oh, that's in your imagination. They're just looking because you're pretty or they're just looking because this, or you're, you have a red jacket on or whatever that dismissiveness, how open am I going to be to be sharing more experiences? Yeah. You know, it, yeah. it's like my father, don't say anything. They're not going to get it. Yeah. Just, just shut up. And that contributes to the silencing of our voices. Yes. So to create safe and inclusive spaces. And, and I mean, this can be in your communities at home. You know, I have this listening framework we, we spoke about earlier before we got on where I have a, you know, I created a framework based on, on stuff I learned from so many other great teachers that I've had in my life. And it's called the LAPI inclusive listening framework. And if you just remember the acronym LAPI, listen, acknowledge, paraphrase, and inquire. So you, you want to listen to intentionally give your undivided attention. You want to listen for understanding. You don't want to listen to fix, react, respond, defend. None of it. You just want to listen to get full understanding. Mm -hmm. And then you want to share your understanding and appreciation of that reality for that person. So you want to acknowledge them. You know, acknowledgement, I call tilling the soil before you plant a seed, <laughs> because you're not going to plant a seed until, you know, the soil you planted in is receptive and can receive it. So you want to not acknowledge that reality of this. So, and, and, and you can acknowledge by paraphrasing, you know, what I hear. So that's the P. That's the P, the paraphrase. Restate to make sure you understand what the speaker is saying. Restate in your own words that my understanding of what you're saying, not I understand, because mm -hmm. you don't understand. You've never had to walk in a store and be afraid of being different in Germany. Just in, and I'll just say Germany, you know, maybe you were in Harlem one day and you were the only white person and maybe you felt that, but that's not a normal lived experience. Right. Um, it's an exception. Yes. But so, you know, you don't want to say, I understand, I get it. Like, here's my understanding of what you're saying. Here's my understanding. Did I get that right? What am I missing? What else would you like to share? Yeah. And then you want to use questions, the inquiry, use questions to deepen understanding, to stimulate creative thinking, to um, foster collaboration and forward movement. So when we talk about 
questions. We want open-ended questions. Um, what, how, where, mm-hmm. when, mm-hmm. you know, what are you hoping to achieve? Mm-hmm. What makes this difficult? What's most important here? Um, who do you need to speak to about this? How can we um, support you? Because a lot of times we'll ask, can I support you? And somebody can just say no and shut you right down. But who do you need to reach out to to get the support that you need? Then we're moving it forward, right? We're moving the conversation forward. And it may be, hmm, let me think about it. I haven't thought about it. And then we can go back and forth. Well, do you know of anybody, you know, who do you have in your community that might be able to help me with this? And then we're kind of on a team. But the the thing that I really want to emphasize in your listening is, you know, this is not listening to agree or disagree. It's just listening for understanding. You do not, you do not have to agree with the person's political affiliation, political statements, mm-hmm. but when people feel that you've understood what they're saying, then you can ask more open questions like, you know, this is what I'm hearing you say. What do you think needs to be done to move this forward, to create this? And then you're in a dialogue. And sometimes, you know, I had this with a client the other day. I said back to him what he said, and he had an aha moment that what he said was complete BS, (laughs) you know, because he heard it come from me. So what I'm hearing you say is, and it was like, oh, when you say it like that, I'm like, I'm saying it exactly how you said to me. Well, yeah, no, that's not really true. That's not what I mean. And then he gets to rethink. So just being open to listening and restating can open up more possibilities than shut them down. Beautiful. Gosh, there's so much in your book. I mean, I really want people to get your book and read it. The Intimacy of Race. It is, it's a small book. It's, it's actually, you I mean, you can read the book in, in one sitting really. And it's mm-hmm. quite compelling. And that was intentional. That's intentional because this is overwhelming to a lot of well, white people. Like, yes. <gasps> you know, I don't yeah. want to read, uh, you know, war and peace so that I can learn about the history of racism. Like, what can I do now? What is tangible for me? What is actionable? What is one little thing that I could do to put action to my allyship that doesn't, you know, it, it involve me picketing and protesting and figuring out every yeah. politician's point of view, you know, what is simple everyday things I can do. You know, I, 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 one thing I learned in your book and I, I've also, this learning has been confirmed in my own experience, my own lived experience with um, being involved in a predominantly African-American spiritual community. And that is my own subconscious racial biases. You know, I, to, to, to have my own blinders be taken off and to become aware of the ways in which I have held some um, some subconscious racist beliefs, for example. And I think a lot of people in white bodies will relate to this. I think a lot of us have thought historically that it was better not to see color, that I was being like the opposite of racist. Mm -hmm. If I don't categorize and divide someone based on skin color. So to think, you know, to become aware of, 
Uh, no, <laughs> that's actually a form. That's actually a form of racism because, well, you, would you speak to that? Why is that a racist belief to think that we don't see color and when in fact it is? Uh, yeah. I've heard this so many times. Yeah. Too. I've actually got into a, you know, this woman <laughs> had a conversation with a woman who swore that she didn't see that I was black. And I'm like, okay, then you need some glasses, mm. you know, like if you, mm. if you can't see that, you know, it's really, for me, it's implying that my color um, is not relevant. Um, that something has to be, you know, it's like when you try not to notice somebody's different abilities, mm -hmm. you know, like maybe a limb is missing or something like that. And you think that if you notice it, you know, it's making them feel different or wrong. So the noticing of it makes you feel different and not in a good way mm -hmm. <laughs> um, or that I need to be subconscious about it. So, you know, a, a real articulate definition I could be is that, you know what, I want you to see me. Yes. I want you to see my color. If you don't yes. see color, you don't see me. Right. Exactly. Yeah. That's exactly the way mm -hmm. it was explained to me. Mm -hmm. If I, if I, if I choose not to see your color, I don't see all the things, all the richness of who you are. Mm -hmm. I don't see the whole, I don't grok that whole ancestral generational lineage that is part of who you are that has informed who you are, all of that is present in you in this very moment, right? Yeah. Is that, am I? Yeah, am I, I mean, you, you're not seeing me, you're choosing not to see me. What's wrong with me that you can't, yet you choose not yeah. to see my color, not to see all of me, Yeah, not to see all of who I am. And, and the same goes with, I, I'm sure you learned with the all lives matter in response to black lives matter. And, you know, those same all lives matter people were quick to say blue lives matter. And I always say so clearly uh -huh. the problem was with <laughs> the word black <laughs> or the color yeah. black. And um, and just because we're saying all lives, uh, black lives matter does not mean that all lives don't matter. If I'm walking for breast cancer, does that mean lung cancer doesn't matter? Mm -hmm. Does that mean heart disease doesn't matter? Yeah. You know, that's not what we're saying. Yes. You know? And yeah. so the, that level of defensiveness, like everything you say that supports black lives, you know, um, and seeking equality and justice, you notice the people on, you know, I notice it on my social media who always have to have something opposite to say and make mm -hmm. a point of opposite. And mm -hmm. they just mm -hmm. don't see the racism through that. And those are the things that kind of like, why are you people even still following me? <laughs> like, <laughs> just go away. You know, I'm not sharing these things to, I'm sharing for awareness, for awareness, for perspective. Like, hmm, I've never thought about it that way. You know, yeah. that's it. I don't need you to react and defend your point of view. Yeah. You know, and so yeah. that's what listening has to do with when we're in one-on-one -on -one conversations or group conversations, you know, so this is what I'm hearing you say. And, you know, 
what leads you to that conclusion? You know, let's, let's get curious before we get furious. Ooh, say that again. Well, let's get curious before we get furious. Most of us jump to furious first. (laughs) That's good. (laughs) I like that. And that has a lot of different kinds of application. You you know, so as, as I said before this, your book is so rich with material. And one of the things you talk about, if one wants to be uh, an active ally, is that you need to um, take on an emotional justice project. Mm. And I wonder if you could talk about that. What is that? Well, the emotional justice project, um, you know, that was from Janine Staples to give her, her credit for that. That's a term, uh, a phrase she coined. That's I think how I want to say that that's, that's her term. And that's taken into consideration, not only a person's external experience, but their internal experiences. And so what can you do on your own level to really look at where racism and the racist system has benefited you and really look at all of those, become more aware of the benefits that you've had from the Mm. the racist society and systems Mm. that this country was built on. And then what could you do personally to, you know, how I have it here to, uh, what is the word that I use? What could you do personally to forward the voices of um, minority businesses? Mm. Um, You know, when it comes to economic empowerment, I mean, the fact that you have me on and you're sharing the book, you know, that's active in your allyship. That's an emotional justice project that you said, you know what, I'm going to do what I can to, you know, get this book into more people's hands or have people learn more about Eva's work, because I think we all need to hear it. what can people do on social media? You know, I had one woman, um, I did a diverse talent showcase as a summit and this woman and her daughter created, you know, this vegan nail polish um, company, her and her four-year-old daughter. And so I had her on like, how can I support this woman and get her out there on social media so that her business grows? Cause she lost her job in the, in the, um, in the pandemic. And so what can you do personally to show action in your allyship? You know, who can you give a shout out to? Who can you like, you know what? I want to give you a seat at this table, this company that I'm working for, they're still kind of have some blind spots and are a little bit tone deaf to, to um, how to create real true inclusive spaces. I'm going to see if I can get you to talk to them about the work that you do and Mm -hmm. how we can bring this in. It really is, you know, taking on a personal responsibility, I call it, of doing what we can to, it's just the little things like, like the microaggressions or mosquito bites, if you will, mm-hmm. <laughs> that you get a bit by enough mosquitoes, you've got a bad allergic reaction and you need yeah. some Benadryl. Well, the same thing when it comes to amplifying the voices of, um, you know, people of color, minority businesses, you know, enough of us are doing a lot of little things, then we can up level the economic empowerment that we've been lacking for so long. 
Oh, wow. Eva, this is so beautiful. It feels like, um, uh, first of all, I've got two thoughts here. It feels like we could do a whole other podcast episode <laughs> together. And I have a feeling that we will be because, uh, and I'm curious to know your experience around this, but what it feels like to me that the whole George Floyd murder, the, the, the rushing to the collective consciousness in the aftermath of that, that it, it was a buzz and everybody was talking about this. And, you know, people like you were writing books and creating Facebook groups and there was all this, and you know, wah, all of a sudden, wah, wah. yeah. And then, yeah, right. <laughs> Black, Black Lives Matter went from being kind of a fringe uh, misunderstood movement to coming more into the mainstream and white people becoming more aware and more accepting of what that meant. And now it feels like we'd had yet another black man killed by the police last week. We, we see more instances of mm -hmm. uh, voter suppression in the South. Oh my God, what's happening in, in elimination political... of black congressional districts. It <sighs> feels to me like we are slipping back, like we're going back in the other direction. And so there needs to be such continued push of awareness and there's so much more work to be done. So one can understand easily how someone like you can say, am I tired? Yes, I'm tired and I'll take a nap. I'm not mm -hmm. quitting because I don't get to. Yeah. I don't have the privilege. I don't have that right. I really don't have the right yeah. to quit. Um, but I, I tell you every day, I feel like it every day, but yeah. you know what? I'm not led around by my feelings and emotions. I'm led around by my vision Yes, and my purpose. And you know, it's not, they're not always matched up when they do match up. It's great. But when they don't match up, you know, I know to choose the vision over the emotion. Oh. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where I'd like to start with you in the next episode. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so I want to thank you so much for spending this time with us today, Eva. Yeah, it's been sure. rich and it's been juicy and I love and adore you. Oh, thank you. And it's been my pleasure to be here with you. Thank you. All the best to you until we meet again in the new beyond. Thanks for being here. When someone first suggested I do a podcast, my first reaction was, yeah, I, I actually have been thinking about it for a long time and it sounds great, but I have no idea how to create and put a podcast out there. Can you hear me arguing for my limitations? Well, no sooner did those words come out of my mouth when two angels appeared and said, no problem, we've got your back. Those two angels are Veronica Arbolita and Justina Nielsen, my producers. My thanks and appreciation to both of you for making this podcast possible. It would not have happened without you. And lastly, I want to thank you, dear listeners, for your support of this podcast. Thank you for your reviews, for all your five-star ratings, and for helping us find our audience through your Facebook shares and posting on other platforms. We're still in our infancy, so every time you share a link to this podcast with others, you're helping us grow. And I'm extremely grateful. We have some very interesting people joining us in the next few weeks, so you won't want to miss a single episode. 
until we meet again out here in the new beyond. Thanks for spending time with us. Many blessings and may God speed you on your journey.